Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and I have a returning guest with me here today. It's actually my dad, Tony. Say hi, Tony. Hi. So, Dad, what what movie are we discussing today? Today we're discussing The Shining. Right, the movie that came out in 1980. Uh, This happens to be my favorite movie, and I want to give a quick shout-out to Brent from uh, DC Suicide Squadcast. He had mentioned to me that I should pick... A movie that I love, uh, and we have discussed some movies that I love already on this show, but um, this is probably my favorite film. And since you introduced it to me, and since you like this movie so much yourself, I decided to uh, invite you back on here and discuss it. Okay. Well, I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, just a little bit of background here, guys. Uh, My dad and I actually saw this movie at Alamo on Monday. They had a screening uh, in two locations out here in Dallas at the Richardson and the Cedar location. It was actually pretty much sold out at both, which surprised me uh, because it was shown after Halloween. I was kind of hoping to do this episode before Halloween, actually, but it just didn't pan out. Uh, The month got too busy. But yeah, we went and saw it. I've actually seen it in theaters before. Um, did we see it in theaters before together? Do you remember? I don't believe so. I don't think so. Yeah, it, it might have just been me and Nick, but I've actually seen it at Alamo before, but uh, I just thought it was a good opportunity for us to both see it and then to just record this episode and kind of discuss it because I think I have some questions about your experience with this movie because I think we see it kind of differently and mm-hmm. I just kind of, I'm, I'm interested to hear your viewpoint. So uh, let's start off with some questions. Um when did you see this movie? I, I know you didn't see it in theaters, but how did you see it and when did you see it? You're right. I didn't see it when it came out because I was I was uh, busy at that time. I didn't see a lot of movies in 1980. Um, but I did finally see it when, uh, after avoiding it for years, really. I did finally see it when you were about five years old, which would make it um, something like 84. 88, 89, yeah, 88, or 89, yeah. yeah, right about then. And I, I was alone that evening and I, I decided to see it. I had avoided it. I was kind of afraid of it. I knew it was a scary movie and there's a difference between scary and disturbing. And I'm okay with scary, but I'm not okay with disturbing. And I felt that this movie would be too disturbing. So I avoided it. Finally, I decided that I wanted to see it. I went ahead and uh, got it. And watched it on VHS at home by myself. And it really freaked me out. But when it was (laughs) over, I decided I really, really liked it. And I think after that, as you grew up, we talk about it from time to time. And then you finally started seeing it uh, again on on DVD or or VHS. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that you like this movie so much for a few reasons, but the main one is, I know you mentioned you don't mind if a movie's scary, but I, I would take it a step further and say that you often do not watch any horror movies, right? That's true. I, yeah. I, uh, I, and let me tell you why. When I was a kid, I did see some horror movies, and they stayed with me. And they stayed with me way too long. And so <laughs> after that, I decided I don't need to be seeing certain things. And and that by the time this movie came around, I was like, nope, I don't see scary movies. I never saw Friday the 13th. I never saw uh, What's-His-Name, Jason, and all those uh, slasher films. Mm-hmm. I never saw any of that because I, I purposely avoided them. Yeah, yeah, understandable. Um, you know, I think this is one of those genres, horror, that uh, it's pretty – you know, it's pretty polarizing. There are a lot of people that, that are extreme movie buffs that completely avoid the genre. And that's always been mm. interesting to me because I like movies so much that I pretty I can pretty much watch any genre. And so to me, horror is just another genre. Like, I just see it as another genre of film. I don't think about those things that, that you mentioned that, you know, what if it's too disturbing? What if I'm too scared? I don't know. I just kind of see it as a movie. So it doesn't really hold any power for me other than that I you know just like anything else um but you know so I always like to ask that question um sure it's interesting to me that that you don't like horror and you don't like disturbing movies and yet this movie uh has elements of both of those things what what do you think about it sets you apart like what why would you why do you consider this movie or why do you like this movie but not watch other movies in that same genre I think it's because of the supernatural element of The Shining. Um, you, when you see a movie, you have to decide whether it has supernatural or not, or, or if something is playing out in somebody's head, mm-hmm. which they, they, they can do very well in movies or books. And the supernatural aspect of it, it reminded me of other things like um, uh, the Amityville horror mm-hmm. uh, and other, other it's been, the, the plot has been used before where a family gets to this place, this usually a house, and then eventually the husband gets uh, overtaken by the demon, possessed, and he ends up killing the family. It, it seems to be a recurring theme, and it always seems to work. And And this is wh- how I saw The Shining. But there's more to it than that, and I think Kubrick uh, showed certain aspects of it that were disturbing enough that it was a little bit more than just supernatural. And there was always a question as to what the supernatural aspect of it was for me. Well, let's start, um, kind of backtrack a little bit here, and I will read the synopsis real quick. So here we go, 1980, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. A family heads to an isolated hotel for winter where an evil spiritual present influences the father into violence, while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from the past and the future. That's just like a real quick, you know, and we'll dive into the plot here soon. Um, And I also had a couple quick facts. I didn't know if you had any facts about the movie, but I can mention a couple. And then if you want to interject and have some as well, we can go through those too. Okay. Um, So Stephen King called this. Okay. So here we go uh, with some quick facts. Um, I don't think, I think I've talked to you about this before, but, you know, Stephen King actually is not a fan of this movie. You know that, right? right? <laughs> yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not a fan of most adaptions of his work, uh, but this particular movie, he and uh, Kubrick kind of had a falling out. Kubrick selected this movie to do because he needed kind of a bigger blockbuster to work on. Um, so he wasn't necessarily super impressed with the source material. It's just 
a project that he kind of needed to fund other projects in a way. He kind of wanted to tackle this genre. And so he sort of took what Stephen King wrote and reinterpreted his way. And, you know, we'll talk about that. There's major differences in his movie from the book. Um, And I think for some people that don't completely resonate with this film, they sort of have this outlook that Stephen King had where he's called it the movie A Fancy Car Without an Engine. (laughs) in other words you know a lot of Kubrick's films they're extremely visual and I think sometimes people see that those visuals and that ambiguity as sort of that's all it is that it's atmospheric and nothing else which I would argue against but certainly that's how Stephen King saw it because the characters in his novel are a lot easier to relate to um they're they've got more layers to them, I think, than they do in this movie. And you really get to know them and empathize with them. And I think in this movie you don't, but I think that's on purpose, you know? So anyway, that's, I just thought that was interesting that he called it that. I I agree. He, uh, Kubrick uh, actually created something different than, than what uh, King had in mind. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine like any writer would say, you know, would feel that it's blasphemous to, uh, take his material and twist it and turn it and come out with a different product, which is what Kubrick did. But I think it was successful. And I think yeah. he took it in a place that that leaves you in the end feeling eerie, uh, disconcerted, freaked out. And, and, and it leaves a lot of questions in mind uh, because some things are never answered. And, and I know that King did not did not intend that. No, I and think so that's his- OK. Yeah, his book was, I, I've read the book too. Um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty straightforward narrative. I mean, it's 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 a great story. It really is. And I encourage anyone that likes the movie to also read the book. Um, but with that said, Kubrick was able to create, I think with this film, an experience uh, of true mm-hmm. horror. To me, this movie stands apart. You know, a lot of people, when I tell them that I love The Shining, they think, oh, Lisa must be a really big horror buff. Well, I'm actually not. Uh, I would say it's probably one of, you know, it's a genre that I more recently have watched a lot of, but growing up I didn't. And it's certainly not, there are not a lot of horror movies in my top 10, you know. Um, It's not really a genre that I am, I I like it, but I'm I'm not a horror buff by any means. This movie to me is so different from other horror movies. Um, and so different from other suspense thrillers, I think it's almost in its own category. You know, if I can go ahead, if I can interject, because you mentioned about reading the book or not reading the book, mm-hmm. I did not read the book. However, I did see the remake, where King has um, has a lot to say in in about how to make the remake, and I saw it and I saw the ending, and it's it's a lot lighter, but it yeah. does not give you that eerie feeling that Kubrick gives you every 20 seconds, every 20 minutes. I mean, not 20 minutes, every, every few minutes, every few seconds, you get this eerie feeling of what's going on. And it's very, very, very evil. And, and, and with the real story or the story that King actually wrote and he makes a movie, uh, you don't get that. Yeah. I think, you know, when you read the book, I mean, it definitely has scary moments. I mean, he is a master of horror. I think he's a great writer, but I Mm. think when he, his ideas didn't translate onto screen directly the way that they play out in the book to me. Um, Uh I think that because it's a different medium, it's not easy to just take something from a book and just put it on screen. And so I think by being too faithful to the book, you actually lose some of that horror, you know? 
And you so, certainly don't. You certainly don't get the flavor that Kubrick added to it. Right. Um, but yeah, I think I think the thing is that sometimes when you're too close to the source material, you might not be able to see things like that objectively. Yes. Um, so, but yeah, I just kind of wanted to say that that I've read the book and that I do really enjoy the book. I actually enjoy both, and I just think it's a different medium, and that you know Kubrick was is a, a master director, and so he brought his expertise to that material and he pulled out of it what he was looking for. And I really enjoy it. Let's go through these really quick facts and then we'll come back to that. Is that okay? Sure. Okay, go ahead. Okay. okay. So we talked a little bit about Stephen King. We talked a little bit about, you know, Kubrick, uh, not really being crazy about it. Um, I also wanted to touch on, you know, Shelley, there's a little bit of controversy with this movie because Shelley Duvall had a very rough time filming. Actually her and Jack Nicholson both did. Um, Kubrick can be, you know, a pretty intense director. I'd compare maybe to like Alfred Hitchcock, you know, mm, yeah. uh, I mean, he, he was a perfectionist and um, he demanded that his actors get it right. Basically uh, Jack Nicholson said on Shelley's performance that it was the toughest job he'd ever seen an actor do. It's a mm -hmm. sentence, the toughest job that any actor I've seen had. Yeah. He well, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, I was watching, I sent you a video earlier. Yes, I saw it. it. Yeah, oh, great. Um, one one thing that I really liked about that video that he talked about was the acting style of this movie. Um, you know, this movie wasn't well received when it first came out. Audiences didn't really know what to think of it, and uh, critics certainly didn't like it, which I point to this a lot with movies that I like that are new that don't always get critically acclaimed, is that sometimes it's hard to tell in retrospect what people are really going to think in the long run. And this is one of those movies, and one of the biggest factors is, you know, when you watch a lot of other horror movies, they have certain elements to them that are pretty consistent, and some of those are a really attractive young cast, which you don't have here. You know, usually it's not an middle-aged man and his wife who's not blonde and another thing is their acting styles are pretty different they both characters seem really frazzled and extreme and that's usually not the style that if you go and watch some other like slasher movies or other horror it's not that I guess I don't know how to say this artistic or that expressive you know mm -hmm. right um if you were to compare it to like Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that people had a hard time with this movie. They're not expecting the sort of acting you would get in a drama in a horror movie, you know? Right. But that's what they give in this movie. Um, so, so yeah, I think uh, Shelley, now I was mentioning earlier, there's a little bit of controversy with her because she, he was so hard on her that she like suffered exhaustion and I think for a long time didn't want to talk about her experience on that set and was angry at him. And I, I know like I have some friends that consider what Kubrick did to her to be abusive. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of the, like I mentioned Hitchcock because didn't Hitchcock kind of terrorize the woman in Psycho? Actually, I don't know that. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that before, yeah. but if you've read it somewhere, it probably is true. Yeah. And uh, it's like, you know, anything to get a real authentic reaction, basically. And I think mm. that's what you get in this movie. I think that's something that really, I mean, that's one of the things that has had the movie like hold on over time is their performances are so good and so real that I think that makes the fear that they're feeling more real, you know? I think so. Even Danny, who was just a little boy, uh, his performance was great. You, you really get the sense that that uh, he's gone like he, he's not there and tony's talking and says um 
uh, Danny is gone. He's not here. Yeah. <laughs> and and you great. really feel like he is gone and that Tony, the imaginary friend who may, may be a familiar or something, and, and he's taken over and he's just kind of holding the fort down while, Tony, while uh, Danny goes away to get some help and come back, yeah. which is exactly what what they want you to believe and, and what happens because he goes and he gets a chef to fly all the way from Miami to Colorado during a terrible storm. Yeah. Um, and also uh, I had a note that Kubrick had the team watch the 1977 film Eraserhead by David Lynch. Have you ever seen that movie? No, I don't believe so. Okay. I don't, I don't feel like you would love David Lynch. <laughs> he made Twin Peaks and okay. uh, Mulholland Drive. Uh, I think Gil is a pretty big fan of him, your brother. But, um, but yeah, it's a very surreal movie. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's just like this movie at all, but there's a, sort of a surreal, disorienting quality to that film. To most I'll have to check it out. Yeah, and, yeah. and so this is this shares that. Um, and I he, see. He's, he's telling his cast and his, uh, you know, his his production team. This is the kind of quality that I kind of want to capture here. And I hadn't read yes. that before, so I just thought that was interesting. I've always um, thought that he clearly knew where he was going and what he wanted to accomplish with this. Yeah, I think with all his films, what I've always liked about them, like I said earlier, people sort of criticize atmospheric qualities as sort of saying that th that means that there's not a lot there. That like, you know, I've heard people say that even like I love Blade Runner and people say, oh, well, it's all just stylistic and atmospheric. And so mm. there's it's not deeper than that. And what I think is some some directors, they show you something. And then mm -hmm. they let you make your own conclusions. I don't actually think that means that it's not as deep. I just think that there's more ambiguity, you know? Right. And they're leaving the audience. It's up to the audience to make decisions based on what they're being shown. But they're being shown a lot of detail. and they're being A lot of shown... nuance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think that it's still there. Um, I wanted to list off a couple of other actors that were... Uh, considered for the role of Jack, which is, you know, Jack Nicholson's okay. character. Uh, Robert De Niro, who he, uh, Kubrick ended up thinking wasn't crazy enough after watching um, Taxi Driver, which he he's, did awesome in that movie, but he just thought the character Jack was a little more unhinged. Um, mm -hmm. He considered Robert Williams, but thought that he was like a little too unhinged. <laughs> <laughs> and then another actor he considered was Harrison Ford. Wow. Yeah. What do you think of those choices? They're interesting choices, but I think I agree that he picked the right one. Jack Nicholson, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I commented uh, to you that night that I could see I could see the Joker in Jack Nicholson in some of the acting, and I had never seen that before. I could yeah. see the Joker that he portrayed in, in, in the, in the bat, first Batman movie uh, remake, and, and he, he was, you know, the expressions and all that, and Jack... Jack, the um, the character in The Shining, it was perfect. It was perfect for, for Jack Nicholson. He was perfect for the part. Yeah, I can't really picture anyone else in this part. And sometimes when we talk about movies, I really can picture someone else. But mm. with this movie, I don't know that a lot of people have that sort of dangerous, unhinged, but also funny quality. Uh, yes. Which, like you said, I, it's actually pretty perfect for the Joker. Um and you can see why he was picked to do that role. But, uh, yeah, there's just something about Jack that is so unsettling and so dangerous. But then you're conflicted because you like him. And I think right. it's hard to have all those elements at once. Um, I think Harrison Ford is too good-looking, too calm. <laughs> too Robert, friendly. Mm -hmm. 
Robin Williams is like a little too silly. Too funny, yeah. Yeah. De Niro is maybe too charming? I don't know. Like, <laughs> there's something about Jack Nicholson where he's got all those qualities at the same time and in a pretty good balance in a lot of his work. Let's go to my last little tidbit. I don't know if you've heard this before. Gil is actually the one that gave me this fact, and I almost didn't believe him. I kind of had to look it up. But um, <laughs> when they released the movie Blade Runner... They used outtakes of the Volkswagen bug traveling towards the Overlook Hotel in this movie and just like stretched it out and kind of made it look like a spinner. Really? Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, and it was because uh, really Scott was asked to make the ending of his film, you know, Blade Runner happier. And so he had Mm -hmm. to like, he didn't have that scene, so he used this scene. Wow. Where they're like escaping into the woods. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yes, it is. Well, then you mentioned uh, uh, the other night I was asking you if you watch any of other, uh, any of other, uh, any, sorry. <laughs> I was asking you um, the other night if you watch any other Stanley Kubrick films and you said you weren't sure or, um, you know, you weren't that invested in him in particular. Um, because I, I think from talking about this, it seems like we both kind of get something different out of the movie. You're more yes. interested in the storytelling and you're more interested in the uh, supernatural element. And I think I'm more interested yes. in this movie visually. Uh, I think that was what I was trying to kind of say earlier, my roundabout rambling way of saying that uh, what I like about this movie so much is the direction uh, and the visuals and the sound and just how immersive this film is. And I think that's something that Stanley Kubrick brings to pretty much all of his movies. I feel like when you watch his movies, you get an experience. It's not just a straightforward film. Well, let me say this about that, because I've noticed that younger people, as, like yourself, um, talk a lot about a director. They'll say, this is the same director that made that movie and that movie. And I think my generation, older, we, we focused more on the movie stars. This star was in that picture. This star is going to do this new movie. This particular, we focused a lot on the movie stars, and we really didn't know who the directors were. At least I didn't. Um, now, my brother Gil, who is younger than me, uh, quite a bit younger, actually, he uh, has always liked directors and followed directors. And, and I noticed that you have as well and other people your age and in your, in your uh, generation. But <clears throat> when you ask me if I've seen other Kubrick movies or that I liked, and I honestly don't know what movies I have seen <laughs> that were Kubrick. You know, I'd have to look for that because I never have. I th- anyway, I just wanted to make that. Yeah, I don't know if that's so much a generational gap as much as it is, are you really into movies? You know, I, mm. I think that a general audience member isn't necessarily focused on who directed it. Yeah, I mean, just, you're right. Just so you I know, so. like when I tell people in everyday conversation, oh, yeah, they directed this movie and that movie, they just shrug like, so? <laughs> you know, they don't see a connection like, why would I like that other movie just because it had the same director? <laughs> but right. They, but they can recall, you know, all the movies that Harrison Ford has been in. So I, yes. I think that's pretty normal. Um, okay. Yeah, I think it's it's mainly people that are really interested in film making as an art or just film in general that they're a little more focused on that. I see. Yeah. Um, well, Stanley Kubrick, a couple other movies that he made just to rattle off a few that you might have heard of. Um, have you ever seen Full Metal Jacket? I've heard of that movie all my life. I have not seen it. <laughs> okay. Uh, how about uh, 2001 Space Odyssey? That I have seen. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, I can't imagine you watching Clockwork Orange. Nope. No. 
Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think in general you would not be a big fan of his work. Oh, Doctor Strange Love. Did you see that? I probably did, but I'm I wasn't a big fan. <laughs> yeah, I figured. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think this movie, out of all of his films, it's probably to me the most like conventional and straightforward. You mm-hmm. know? I, I think it's one that general audiences would like. And it happens to be my favorite. And I think sometimes with other movie geeks, that probably makes me sound like, I don't know, not as up on my stuff. Because why would I be so into this one in particular? Like, they probably think he has better films. But mm-hmm. it just, it, it hit me in all the right places. I just really like this movie. But um, yeah, a couple of facts I had on him is that uh, Stanley Kubrick often refused to talk about movies on set. And he never watched them once they were completed. I guess he just saw them as, you know, a project. Now, The Shining is different in that regard because this movie, his daughter made some behind-the-scenes footage that you can usually watch, like, as an extra on the DVD, or you can even Google it. I was watching it right before we started. Uh, I've seen it mm-hmm. before, but she yeah, made, I've like, seen a little that. documentary, and so he talks a lot during that process, but he typically didn't like to. I, um, I did see that, by the way, because I, I had uh, several times, and I, yeah. I agree. Uh, seven of his nine films have been nominated for Oscars, and he mm-hmm. was nominated for Best Director four consecutive times. Wow. So, That's pretty impressive. Yeah, so, you know, you don't have to be a huge fan of his work, but you do have to, you know, you do kind of have to acknowledge that he, he uh, you know, is, is a master, I think, in filmmaking, um, or at least very well respected. Uh, and I can see why. Yes. So, um, like I said, I really like, that's probably one of the strongest aspects of this film for me is just how it looks, how it feels, how it sounds. And so I Mm -hmm. credit him for that. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Jack Nicholson. Okay. Uh, He's probably one of my favorite actors. Um, Mm -hmm. Really enjoyed his performance um, in a couple other films, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is probably another one of my favorite films. Oh, yeah. I really, really like that movie. Uh, He's in... The Departed, more recent movie I can think of that he was in, in one of your favorite films, As Good As It Gets. <laughs> right. I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't think about that movie and not think about you enjoying it and quoting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think one of the, I think Jack really is one of the biggest strengths of this movie, too. You know, he his, his performance is so believable and so relatable, as you were mentioning earlier. Um, he just really brings a quality to this film that, I think would be challenging for other directors. I think you mentioned Amityville horror earlier. Yes. I Mm -hmm. feel like the biggest difference between this movie or this story, how Kubrick told it in that movie, probably or in that other story probably is Jack, right? Because I feel like when I watch that movie and I think most recently I saw the remake, which I think was with Ryan Reynolds. I don't recall. Well, anyway, my problem with the movie was it felt like he went from being a terrific, wonderful dad to killing Mm -hmm. his family. And I don't right. think that's authentic, um, even if there's a supernatural quality involved. I think just as the audience, we have to see that transition, um, mm-hmm. and it has to be believable. And to me, when you start out with someone like Jack Nicholson, it's more believable, or at least the way that he plays it. Yes, yes, because it, they do mention in one of the um, synopsis that I read, and I, re- I read a few uh, earlier today, they mentioned that this man is kind of, kind of a little bit disturbed. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning, you know, the scene in the car where he brings up the Donner Party and right. cannibalism. It's not really something you would say in front of your children normally. Uh, 
What do you think about Shelley Duvall and her performance in the movie? Oh, I thought she was perfect. She was the perfect, frail woman who is helpless and, and is a real victim. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end, she becomes a victor, not because of her strength so much as because the right things happened for her. Mm-hmm. Yes, she is a strong woman in the end, but there were so many times where she could have been blown away, but she wasn't. And she focused, she acted like a mother. She was a mother from beginning to end. And, and it was that motherhood. She needed to save herself and her child, mainly her child. And I think that's what kept her going. And that's what finally, finally redeemed them out of that place. Yeah, she seems so incredibly distraught the whole movie. And I think, mm. you know, Jack's anger and his unhingedness that gets worse and worse throughout the film. And then her franticness. I mean, they really... There's a lot of qualities that play into why you're dreading this whole movie that something's going to happen. That yes. you know they're building towards a climax. Um, and one way that Kubrick got his actors there, as I mentioned earlier, was taking the same scene over and over. I've heard that some of the scenes went up into the triple digits of takes. Wow! And that like the baseball scene where she's like you know threatening him with that baseball bat. Um, was like taken 127 times. Oh my and so gosh. literally the actors are sort of losing <laughs> their minds trying to figure out what Kubrick wants, you know? And that yeah. sort of adds to their desperation, to their uncomfortableness, to their anger. And so it, it adds to their performance. It just feels, the whole movie just feels real to me. But when the f- movie first came out, because of how unhinged they were acting you know people thought the movie was unrealistic but i actually think it's more realistic um yes i would like to say that kubrick apparently he was either severely ocd or (laughs) (laughs) or he just didn't know when to quit and he knows a lot of psychology about human psychology about how a human being can get worn down worn out and then gives you you know all these emotions that you wouldn't normally get. Yeah, he's Either pulling one. them out of his actor. Um, yes. Uh, you, and, and, you know, this this performance is just so incredibly different from anything else I think Shelley did, right? Because when yes. you think of her, you think of, like, Annie Hall or Popeye is what I think of. Because <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. was little and that not, Much later. not, not a classic, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what I remember her from. But, yeah, it, it's uh, – I don't – I feel like she didn't really have any other roles like this. It's not like she's, like, a scream queen. You know, but she did a great job. She was like she looked exhausted. And I think I saw in the uh, in the behind the scenes uh, home movie that she actually got was sick during some of that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so she looked she really, really looked pathetic. Yeah, it was terrible. What what would do to anybody under the such circumstances? Yeah, I, I read something today, too, that Jack Nicholson would get so exhausted from those long days. He was dating or married to Angelica Houston at the time, and that he would just come home and just fall asleep. That's it. Not say anything (laughs) and get back up and work again. Um, Do you want to talk about some of your favorite scenes from the movie? Yes, I do. Okay, okay. I do. So now now I know you you, you kept wanting to get to this part sooner, so let's go ahead and dive into it. (laughs) I want to get to the bar scene because that has always been, to me, a uh, uh, like a a the, the the first time that it is revealed that something very supernatural and and sinister is happening when he comes up to the bar and there's no liquor there's no alcohol and he puts his he, he puts his head in his hands and he's at the end of his rope because his wife just accused him of of uh, physically harming Danny again and he 
says, I'd give my soul uh, for a drink. And then who appears, you know, but um, Floyd, the bartender. And Please, notice Floyd. that Lloyd, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Lloyd. And he noticed that he already knows Lloyd. He already knows his name. I don't know that there's a name tag on him, but he calls him Lloyd. No, and then he tells I, him. Yeah, there's so there's so many things about this movie that are not answered. And mm -hmm. I think they're left up to you to interpret. Yes. Um, but I think that's that's one of them that lets you know that you, sir, have always been the caretaker. And because of that, he knows Lloyd. In fact, he knows everybody. But they they don't tell you that yet. But when he asks for some alcohol and they have it, and they tell him his credit is good, you know, just that whole scene. And at that point, I didn't know whether this was going on in his mind or if he was really having a drink. It looks like he's really having a drink. Yeah. When his wife shows up, everybody, including Lloyd, disappears. Right. I think that's what one really cool quality of this movie for me is it's, you know, it's not just showing someone's descent into madness. You're getting to experience it with them. And I feel like that's... all the characters are sort of experiencing a breakdown throughout the film. And you get to feel that with them so that by the time that things really hit the fan, you know, you're you're right there experiencing it with the characters. Yes, and let me let me go on a little bit about that. When when Grady comes over and accidentally spills uh, whatever that was, uh, avocado. I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is? Oh, I can't remember what he said. No. I'm yeah, just... he he spills it on him, and he says, "Oh, I'm so terribly sorry." And so he he convinces him to follow him into the men's room, and he starts cleaning him off and all that. And it goes like Jack suddenly becomes like the 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 main, uh, you know, the, the guest who has been offended. And but as the conversation goes on, Grady, the uh, the um, uh, server, becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and then you realize that Grady really was the Grady that killed his family earlier. And when he says to Jack, "You sir have always been the caretaker," I bet that is the best line of that whole movie. Yeah. And that is when when you start to realize that there's something bigger going on. There is a um, uh, a secret society, if you will, and they're running this whole show, and Jack is just beginning to play into their hands. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I can't decide what I think exactly is happening with that. You know, is the hotel sort <laughs> of like an evil entity, and the more time you spend there, you become a part of its history? I think a lot of that is left sort of unsaid, at least for yes. me. Yes, it is I, a question mark. Yeah, because, you know, it did Grady, Grady as far as we know, that was only a couple years ago that he was there taking care of the hotel just like he was. And that's why he said, you used to be the caretaker. And he says, no, you are. To me, it, it You have always felt, been. Yeah, to me, it felt like, I don't know, like the hotel pulls you in and then you become a part of its history and you can't escape it. There's a question of reincarnation there, too, because at the end where they show that picture of Jack, it says 1921. And this here is clearly, what, 70s? 79, I guess, or 80. Okay. Yeah, because it's in, in present time uh, at the time. And and uh, so Jack's a lot younger. This He had to be uh, have been, one theory, uh, reincarnated Jack, and now he kind of finds himself becoming the old Jack that he was. And, of course, Grady's dead. So he's there's a, there's a society in the hotel that is dead, and they see each other all the time. And then there's Jack who's still alive, and he's being asked to kill his family because they want they want Danny and they want his wife out of the way, and he is the caretaker. 
in 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 afterlife and in present life. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's left pretty sort of open ended because they definitely set up in the beginning. You know, when he gets to the hotel, he tells him that story that uh, the last caretaker Grady went crazy and killed his family. Um, they also and then killed himself, right, and killed himself. They so also he's dead. Yeah, and they also mentioned that when they built the hotel, it was on, you know, <laughs> Indian ground, and they had to fight them off. And then uh, when Danny meets Holleran,d um, the cook, you know, mm-hmm. Holleran mentions that a lot of things have happened here, and not not all of them good because it's yes. in a hotel. But I think it's also sort of implying that there's sort of a cycle of violence, and I think when you see the flashbacks or visions that Danny gets and, and even the rest of the family, it, it feels like there's just something evil about this hotel where it, maybe it's just stuck in a loop of replaying the same acts over and over. Whatever links all of it together to me is just the violence, you know? Yes, and, and it's definitely a story about that hotel, even though it's a story about the family as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And Danny, by the way, has has the ability to not only look at the past, but look at the future. Right. In the because, book, because he does both. In the book, uh, Tony is, I think it's like, uh, this is hard to explain, but I think Tony in the book is, you find out at the end, him from the future talking to himself in the past. Really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think so. I think that's what it was. Yeah, and, I wouldn't know because uh, I didn't. Yeah, and so it's just, I don't know. I think, to me, what's more successful or what's more enjoyable to me about this movie, again, is that you don't get all those questions answered because I think there's a lot of fear associated with the unknown. So Mm -hmm. when you answer every single question, you kind of take away from that. And I think that's also why it's so subjective. You know, why are things that are scary so subjective? Because everyone is scared of something different. But yes, and what, he leaves it up to you to, to, to put right. the pieces together. Yeah, so I think the fact that we never get that Tony question answered gives mm-hmm. that character, I think, a little bit more power because we don't know what the limits are. We don't know what the end game is. We don't even really know if it's a positive or negative thing till the end. And it, it's also a way for the character Danny to do things that a child wouldn't normally do and still have that be believable, I think. Yes, and give us a hint uh, at what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to talk about the two little girls. Okay. I remember that my sister-in-law once, yes, my sister-in-law once says, notice they're not pretty girls. They're not sweet. <laughs> There's not really anybody pretty in the movie. I mean, I, <laughs> right. again, that that's a really big difference between this movie and a lot of horror um, there's there's a lot of differences, but I think that's a big one is that it's not a bunch of beautiful people making out in the back of a car getting killed by a serial killer, you know? <laughs> well, can I, can I make a confession? The first time I saw those two little girls in their little blue uh, dresses, it freaked me out big time. Well, they're unsettling because, I, you know, one thing that Kubrick pointed out is they're not actually twins. They're just dressed the same. I mm-hmm. think, you know, he was really into symmetry you can see that a lot in the movie with the patterns in the carpet and the set design and even the characters and there's also sort of i I don't know if you noticed in that that clip i sent you but there's something about mirrors in the movie too like there's a Mm. lot of mirrors and so i feel like those two girls even though they're not twins it's playing with that whole like reflection idea you know yes They're, they're dressed the same they sort of look the same but they're they're not twins and they're not beautiful little girls they're just unsettling 
they did mention initially that that the girls were eight and ten. Mm-hmm. But but when you see them together, they almost do look like twins. Yeah, and I think that's on purpose. Again, I think that's sort of one of the like symmetry type things and maybe what's unsettling about them is they're dressed the same but when you look at them you can tell they're not the same it's mm-hmm. just sort of visually like upsetting you know <laughs> and i think there, uh, there's something about children being murdered or slashed that is so disturbing yeah. so when they show the little girls and then they show flashbacks of what actually happened in the hallway and all the blood and all that it's it's just very unsettling and i think that was one of the elements of this um this movie that that makes it a horror film. Yeah. Well, and you were talking earlier about how, uh, you know, this movie, you're just filled with a sense of dread the whole time. And you mentioned the music, yes. which I agree. I think the score <laughs> adds a lot. There's a lot of parts of the film where it's not even music. It's almost just sounds yes. or, or a lack of sounds. And that's really <laughs> upsetting. But I also, to me, one of the biggest parts of the movie is just the way that he shows you the space that they're in. Um, yes. I don't know, in that, that clip I sent you, um, they talk about a lot of horror movies are, are about tight shots. You know, they, they show the main character up close, and they don't let you see off screen. They show you the action that's happening right in front of them, right? You know, when you right. think of, because that's, you don't, you don't see what the, the character's seeing, and so your mind is qu- kind of wondering what they're seeing. Well, in this movie, they show you the entire scene, <laughs> Yes, you know, and, and the isolation. Angle shot. Exactly. A big right. part of the movie is isolation. And that's why, for a lot of the story, you're not even sure if there is something supernatural going on or if these people are just going nuts in this mm-hmm. house in the middle of nowhere because they're completely isolated. And by showing you visually how isolated they are, when they do show people that shouldn't be there, it's scarier and it's more upsetting. Oh, yes. Yeah, like, like 237 when... When yeah. the chef introduces 237, stay out, of, stay away from there. I have Danny to is. criticize the way he told him, now don't go in there. You have no. I feel like that is a guarantee that kid will go in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you well, think? you know, I, I, I thought that too. I thought you tell a kid not to go in a certain room and he'll go there. He didn't tell him not to go into any of the other rooms and he didn't go into any of the other rooms. <laughs> he just went there. Yeah. But. But that element of, of, of nobody else is in the ho- hotel and then there's this woman, Jack goes up there. He's he's clearly a pervert. He likes women, <laughs> uh, which is not pervertish, but he 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 likes they, women. They give a lot of hints. The reason why that plays so <laughs> that way is because in the movie they show him having like a roaming eye a few times. It's subtle, and I feel like the first time you watch a movie, you might not notice it. But when you go back, I don't know. You get the feeling that he's kind of a kind of a cad, and so that makes that part I think a little more believable when he when he does. Like, I feel like most people in that situation, if you're in a hotel alone and suddenly there's a woman in, in, a, in the bathroom, it would be scary. You wouldn't be like, well, uh, this is great, you know, the way that I was Jack freaked does, out. But... Let me get what they did. He, Jack goes in there and he goes in very slowly from one room to another, up some steps, finally to the, to the bathroom. The curtain is shut. You can clearly see through the curtain that there is a person there. And then Celine Dion comes out. <laughs> she does look like Celine Dion. <laughs> and then he gets real excited about it. And then closes his eyes, opens his eyes, and she's this old woman and and really freaks him out. And not only is she old, but she's dead and she looks her her body is decaying and he runs out of there. That scene was very, very freaky. I, yeah, I think I think that realization part is one of my favorite scenes or it really stuck with me as a kid when I saw it because he uh, he sees you he sees her, but then he looks in the mirror 
again, the mirror thing that comes up a lot in the movie. They're always looking in mirrors or talking to each other in mirrors. But anyway, right. he looks in the mirror and then he's horrified and then they show it to you. And as he's backing away, they sort of rewind the scene back to the the old lady now in the tub decaying and getting out of it. And I always yes. thought that was so disturbing visually for some yes, reason. Yes, it is. It's like it would have been less scary if, if they had shown her laying in there and he just like pulled the curtain back and she came out. It wouldn't have had the same impact as it does psychologically when they disarm you with this like attractive woman. Then he's horrified. Then he sees it. Then you flash back to the other scene. Like something about that sequence is really jarring, I think. And I think also at that point you realize that this old woman in the bathtub is the one that hurt Danny. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said so, that that happened. Again, yes. a lot of things that are scary in this movie are things that are unseen. You know? mm-hmm. Right. As opposed to when you were talking earlier about the, the one that Steven Spielberg um, helped create and direct um, to be a more faithful adaption. I think the problem with that movie is giving you too many answers and g- giving you too many straightforward scenes. Right. Yeah. It's less creepy. And, and, and uh, this one is very creepy. And that's what, you know, that's what yeah. makes the movie. Right. Like, like in that clip we were watching, they filmed it in the hotel that he stayed in, which is considerably smaller because, mm-hmm. you know, this, this hotel doesn't exist, <laughs> right? Uh, it's <laughs> mostly a set. I mean, if, if you see a lot of movies and you watch a lot of behind the scenes, you can tell just by the way the camera moves that it couldn't be a real space. Because mm-hmm. of like you know the way it moves sort of between walls and the freedom that the camera has, you, right. you know, a hotel wouldn't have that. Um, but if you film it in a real hotel, it's you know significantly smaller. It's tighter spaces and it's homier and cozier. And I mean that's not what that's not the aesthetic that Kubrick went for. You know. Right. Right. And and of course they uh, I I remember listening to the um, documentary on the movies that said that they had to build a set that looked exactly like the hotel but it had been burned down and there was dead people sitting there and oh, and, yeah. and they had to go from 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 the real from the hotel that was uh clean and beautiful to that part and then back to the hotel that was still you know in existence when and that's the part when uh, Shelley Duvall is walking through and she sees all that she's beginning to see what Danny can see mm-hmm. and one thing i'd like to comment on is the music in the background it seems to me that Kubrick or whoever decided to do that music, he just, they just made it very sinister from the very beginning to the very end. And because I had never seen it in a theater, I didn't realize it was that loud. Uh, oh, it yeah. doesn't come across when you watch it on TV, but at the theater, I could really hear it. And they even played sinister music when nothing sinister was happening. Like, for example, you have uh, Danny riding his big wheel through the hallways. Nothing is happening. He's just riding. But the music, the background is very, very sinister. And so you're, it, it sets your nerves at a point to where you're just about ready for something major to happen every time he makes a turn. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing I never realized. But I think they used, he used it wisely. Uh, I think they've probably toned back on some of that in, in, in no other horror films. But I noticed how much, how much it played into me feeling that something awful, awful, awful was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's another favorite scene that you have? I think those are the uh, the very favorite. I kind of like the uh, the end where uh, Danny uh, goes into the um, the labyrinth and then he backtracks and outsmarts his dad 
and that's the reason why his dad finally dies in there because uh, he's um, he just can't get out and he freezes to death. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, Kubrick made that maze because he didn't have the budget for. In the book, it's like supposed to be hedge animals that are like moving. Oh yes, and, uh-huh. uh, yeah, and he didn't have the budget for that, so he he did a maze instead. But I think well, it's better. Yeah, the 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 maze worked. I mean, yeah. it really did. You can see how. If you don't know your way around a maze, you're going to be stuck there long enough to freeze, as opposed to if you if you found a way out, you could get out and save yourself. But he couldn't. He was exhausted, and he just froze. Yeah. Yeah, I think in this movie, um, I guess I forgot to talk a little bit about when I first saw it and all that, but um, I guess you showed it to me probably, and then... Also, your brother had this big book about Kubrick that he showed yes. me as well. And I think that's why, for me, I sort of looked at the movie from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. I, I like any movie where it's really immersive the way that this is, mm-hmm. you know, where you're trying to figure out as the audience what's going on and you feel sort of as disoriented as the characters do. And then yes. also just visually, it's just so stunning and, uh, and beautiful that even though it's disturbing... I, I don't know. I just really appreciate the, I guess, the artistry of it, you know. Let me mention one more scene that, that I think is very significant. Uh, I was so disappointed when Danny finally uh, makes contact with a chef who lives in Miami. He flies back, and they show him going from the airport, the airplane, landing, driving, getting to the place, getting borrowing a vehicle, the snow snow vehicle, driving it all the way and he gets there and i had so much hopes the first time i saw this that if he was going to save the day he was going to save danny he was going to save um his mother and he gets there and almost immediately he is killed Mm -hmm. and he is killed in the worst possible graphic way acts to the heart and and like as soon as that happened i was like i was shattered i was like now what it's over you, well, you know, who's going to save them? Even if you had read the book, I, I don't think he dies in the book either. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I think that that sort of journey with Holleran sort of plays on that whole foreboding feeling, right? I mean, again, I feel mm-hmm. like the entire movie is sort of terrorizing you, like pulling these feelings of suspense and dread out of you through sounds, through the space that they're in, through isolation, through the characters and the way that they, you know their emotions bring that out of you and then even with this sort of almost side story of hollering getting from miami to there even that is like pretty stressful and then when he finally gets oh yeah he said he's killed you know what's interesting is this entire movie you're so just afraid of what jack is gonna do because he you know you know he's hurt danny in the past you know he's an alcoholic you know as the movie progresses he becomes more and more angry and more and more erratic and yet the only real violence you see from him is when he acts as that guy because previous to that he axed a door down it's Mm -hmm. it it is the threat of violence that you're afraid of not actually seeing it yes and and let's let's talk a little bit about how jack being the victim i remember his argument with his wife saying what do you want to do? And she says, I want to take Danny to a doctor. When do you want? As soon as possible. And he, and he mimics her as soon as possible. And he says, what about me? (laughs) What about me? Have you considered what's going to happen to me and my future? And the fact that I've made uh, an obligation to this hotel, to these people, a promise. And, 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 you know, I need to come through. 
what about that? And she's like, she can't think of anything else but the concern of her son. And I think that particular argument or back and forth uh, makes Jack a little more endearing. Like, it's true. What about him? What's going to happen to him if they really? just leave? Oh, yes, yes. read the scene so differently. I love this. <laughs> but yeah, but see, in, in the whole movie, I mean, we all agree that Jack's a bad guy. But there are moments when Jack is a real human being. Well, you know, like when he gets accused of hurting Danny and he did not do it. He did not do it. It was that woman in 237. And then when he tries to plead with her and says, what's going to happen to me? I can't. But of course, by that point, we already know that he's trying to kill her. <laughs> so See, you've got to keep both in mind. Yeah, I read that scene so differently because to me, that to me, that's his. OK, like one lens to look under this movie. Again, what makes it believable is that Jack is an alcoholic. He is abusive. And we know that. We know that he has a propensity towards violence. And we can tell from watching the movie, I think, pretty early on that Shelley is a little afraid of him. And that she constantly, you know, for her, it's like she can almost never say anything right. Almost everything she says irritates him. Uh, you know, there's that scene where he tells her, don't come in here when I'm working or even when I'm not working. It's like, huh. I mean, she, he's got so many rules that she has to follow that she's always sort of tiptoeing on eggshells wondering what the right thing to say is. And in that moment, she's, you know, she's desperate to get, to save Danny and something is clearly wrong with him. And then I think truthfully, she wants to get away from Jack. And so she tells him that like appealing to him on a, on a human level, our son, like let's think about our son and what our son needs. And his response is to turn that back on her and accuse her of, not caring about him, you know, how could you do this? You're so selfish, you know, you're not even thinking of me. Do you ever think of anybody but yourself? To me, that's a very manipulative way to turn that conversation back on her. Yes, you know? I agree, and, and I, except it, that he articulates it so well. Right, but that, that to me, that's what's kind of scary about it. It sounds right, you know, he says, <laughs> you never think about me. Do you ever think about me even for one solitary second? And he gets so angry at her, and she's so, I mean, she says, I'm, I'm confused. And, and I think that, that that's, a, I think, a very real exchange from an abusive yes. relationship is that the victim is sort of like, you know, when the, when the abuser says something like that to them, suddenly they're back to square one. I mean, she came mm -hmm. in there convinced, I'm going to get Danny out of here. Uh, we're going to get out of here. And then he comes back with that argument and she doesn't even know what to say. Right. <laughs> and she goes, no, I, I just want to go back to my room. And, and, I have uh, to acquiesce <laughs> to what you're saying. But I think that in moments of moments of empathy, you, you realize that he's a victim, too. Oh, and definitely. And I think that plays... that's a complicated part of that relationship is that, I mean, I feel that it's implied, especially in the book, it's basically stated. I mean, he comes from an abusive background, so does she. So they're sort of replaying a, a violent pattern. And that movie yes. is kind of, or the story is sort of about replaying violent patterns, right? So I think right. that's in there as well. Um, to, to credit what you're saying, I think what you're getting out of it is What's unsettling about that scene, too, is that's a very familiar argument. Like, mm -hmm. if you take out the violence, if you take out what's happening and that he's a bad, you know, he's um, an alcoholic and abusive, that argument of, you know, what about me and my needs and, and that exchange is familiar. And I think it's unsettling for anybody to see that has been in a any sort of domestic relationship because you can on some level relate to it. 
Exactly. So I think that's what you're relating to. And and that's what the, the plot does, though, is take a lot of things that are normal and safe and apart and something we can really relate to and twisting it into something scary, right? Because you love your parents. We, you know, from Danny's point of view, we all know what it's like to have pretty much, I mean, we know what it's like to have a family and mm-hmm. we, a family is a safe place. And right. yet in this story, it's slowly becoming a dangerous place and eventually his father is going to kill them. And mm-hmm. that is really scary. And it also happens. So I think right. like it's, it's on all those different levels. And I think that uh, one uh, lens to view it under is if you're Jack, like you're saying, you're sympathizing with him. Like how scary is it when you get angry at your family, when you lose control, you, you have to be able to relate to the character in order for all that, those things I think to work, you know? Well, and, and the question is, does Jack redeem himself? And I think for me, the answer is no, he yeah. does not redeem himself at the end. However, especially if he is such a sinister character, like you're painting him to be, because then <laughs> you're saying that he wasn't possessed. He wasn't taken over by another spirit. He had it all in him to be that bad. I, I think that um, I'm not necessarily going to say he had it in him to, to kill his whole family, but or that he wouldn't have done that had they not gone to the overlook. But I think what makes that transition more believable is that he does have a serious anger problem, a serious alcohol problem, and he has a history of violence. So with that stage set up, it is easier to believe that he would transition into that quicker. Now, is there a you know supernatural force pushing him towards that? Yes. But mm-hmm. what makes that moment stronger for us as the audience is that there is an element of reality to it. Yes, I agree. Uh, um, and I think that um, you know one criticism that Stephen King had about this movie is that there isn't a lot of redeeming qualities for Jack. I mean, right. He starts off as kind of a you know son of a gun, and he ends as a murderer. He doesn't start <laughs> yeah. off as like a be- a wonderful caring dad. Right, he does. And a great husband, you know. And right. and he just it just gets worse from there. Whereas I think Stephen King's angle uh because it's kind of about him, you know, if if you know a lot about Stephen King, he has struggled yes. a lot with addiction. Uh, addiction, and that's when, right. When he wrote this story in particular, he was sort of in recovery or so he thought. Um and actually his worst years were to come. But he, you know, he was sort of in denial, like I, I've, I've beat it. Now I'm ready to write the story that sort of his catharsis, you know. I read his book, of, um, uh, a book on the craft. He uh-huh. writes, it, it's, it's highly, highly uh, autobiographical. Yeah. And, and he paints himself the, as such, yeah. you know, and, an addict. And, and so I think, you know, he, he talked about having these thoughts, these dark thoughts with his family of, and, and realizing, like, I could hurt them. And I've had this thought before, and I get really angry at them and just sort mm. of being really disturbed by that. And so I think for him, you know, the writing the book was sort of how he was healing himself or at least mm-hmm. his perception of that. But what's ironic about that is, you know, his worst years were sort of yet to come. So to me, it's sort of a dishonest look at what, at what that character is and his motivations you know what i mean so like in the movie i i think if when you make a movie about a guy that is an alcoholic that got fired from his job hitting a student which is what happens in the book and has also hit his son and then he has thoughts violent thoughts about them before the hotel gets involved and then he tries to kill them i think it's really hard to make that character someone we empathize with (laughs) what about when he had the nightmare that he that he dreamt that he had killed them and he was very distraught that makes yeah. him very human. 
True. However, I want to I want to say this before uh, before I I don't get to say it. The cook Holleran. Yeah. His trip from Miami to Colorado really was uh, significant because in the end, his vehicle that he brought there was the one that that uh, the mother and son escape in. Right. Had he not done that, they would not been able to. They would have been stuck there with nobody knowing what's going on for who knows how long, and Jack dead in the labyrinth. Yeah, because by that time, Grady had told Jack, you know, you need to take care of this. And, he's, yes. and he does it. And he, what he does is he goes and he disables the radio and then he disables the the vehicle. The vehicle. They show you him disabling the radio, but mm-hmm. there's a, you kind of forget about it. And then when he tells, uh, when he gets injured and she drags him into that meat locker, when he, he gets hit by the baseball bat and she drags him into the, not the meat locker, but in the pantry and locks him in. Right. Um, he says, you know, you've got a real surprise coming to you. Go take a look. <laughs> yeah. And she does. And she realizes like they're trapped there with him. Exactly. So, so then Holleran bringing that vehicle is yeah. what ultimately saves them. So in a way he did accomplish what he set out to do, unfortunately at a terrible cost. Yeah. I really like that character a lot. The cook. Yeah. He was very he warm. So sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It was believable that he would be motivated to go back up there and save them. Yeah. I think I have nothing else to say. <laughs> <laughs> that was quick. Uh, I'm yeah. trying to think. I, for me, like almost every scene has a lot of significance. I think it's one of those movies where I've become sort of crazy about it to where mm-hmm. every single scene I'm seeing so much meaning, like maybe that might not even be there. And I think that the, you know, uh, Kubrick's style of giving you all that like symmetry and putting so much detail in the background and showing you things and giving you hints throughout the movie, that's what leads us to want to keep going back and watch it over and over again and not answering our questions completely makes us want to keep returning to the movie over and over and try to figure out what it is he was trying to say. And Mm -hmm. I, I have noticed that you know, in all the movies that I watch, that's a current, that's a theme for me is if, if the director can leave it sort of open-ended and open for interpretation, that kind of feeds into my desire to overanalyze it. And so that's why I like the film so much. And unfortunately, the, the fact that it wasn't a big hit and then later becomes a, a, a cult, um, uh, you know, fans, tremendous amount of fans of the movie because they discovered it slowly. Uh, it's kind of tra- a tragedy for him because he was looking forward to a big hit. Right. And then he doesn't get it, but later on, it's like nobody can forget that movie. No, I think I think the uh, the visuals, um, I think in that clip, too, one of the clips I sent you, like that scene, actually you and I were talking about the other day, you're like, what do you think about that scene with the the guy with like the bear or wolf mask? Oh, yeah, the disturbing and, scene. Yeah, I kind of got an answer for that from watching that clip and... I, mm-hmm. Because it's been so long since I read the book, I forgot that that wolf character is in the book too. But uh, in the book, and in and if you watch like the mini series that uh, King did, uh, it's just a guy wearing the mask, and he jumps out at Danny and tells him he's going to kill him. But what's scary about the scene in the movie is that you don't get any answer for why he's there. You don't know what. You're, right. For a minute, you're just standing there going, "What am I looking at?" And so is uh, Shelley. She's just horrified. And, you know, there's always something disconcerting about a mask in general because you can't see the person's face. You don't know what they're thinking, what they're feeling. It's scary. It's Um, off-putting. And you never get any more. Yeah, and you don't get an answer. So I think that 
I think that was the intent of that scene was basically just to get stuck in your mind and have you go, what the heck's going on? You know, the same way that Shelly's character is like, I mean, she's just losing her grip on reality. She has no idea what's happening. And then this scene happens and it's just making it worse, you know? And I think Kubrick was all about giving us that feeling that, that fear, that dread, that fear of the unknown. And that's, to me, that's the motivation of that scene. And that's why right. so many of these scenes that he showed us, they stick with us longer than a scene in a movie where there's a guy with a knife just stabbing people. Because like I said earlier, we're so afraid of what Jack's going to do, but he, he really doesn't physically do that much. We don't see a lot of violence. You notice, too, that Jack never actually did the duties that he was hired to do. Oh yeah, it was mm-hmm. it was uh, Shelley that was Shelley. going around, because yeah, he's doing writing, them. And then later you find out he's writing nonsense. That's a really good scene. Oh, that is a really good scene because at that moment when she discovers that, it lets you know that this whole thing is a ruse of some sort, and nothing good is going to happen. The, my take on that was wasn't so much that he was a, such a bad guy, but that he had been more and more overtaken by this spirit uh, that that lived there. He was more and more possessed. Like at first he's a quarter possessed and he's a half, but now he's three quarters and it's not very long before they bring out the, the big blade and to kill people. Yeah. So I, I still see him as a victim up to that point. Oh yeah. I would never say that he's not a victim of the hotel. But in the end though, when they show you the picture that he used to be the caretaker, that he was always been the caretaker, then it makes him a little more than a victim. It makes him more of a, of a person that belongs with those people because he's already died once and now he's come back. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think it's, like I said, I think it's left open-ended. Did he die and come yeah. back or did somehow the hotel absorb him and then alter its own history? Because mm-hmm. you never see him in pictures before that. Like if you were to go back right. and try to look for, there aren't any. There's no <laughs> they indication. They don't let you see any. Was, yeah, there's no indication he really was there before. I, I think it's just meant to to sort of have you scratching your head and wondering what happened. Well, I think it was a perfect ending because it, so it, you know, it, it, it lends to many more questions and, and you don't walk out of that theater thinking, Oh, that, you know, he, the, the bad guy got it in the end. No, no, no. There's much more than that. Yeah. Like I think in the book too, uh, you know, his father has a moment where he's apologizing to Danny. He has moments where he tells them to run and then I think, like, even after he dies, he appears at a ghost, as a ghost, like, at his graduation, I think. Oh, yeah, but in they, the book. They give you, like, so much closure about it. And yeah. to me, yeah. I, I don't, I think, I, again, I would not criticize the original story because I think it was very well told and it, it works. But for me, my preference is the way the movie played out. Much more memorable. Yeah, yeah. And, much and, more and, um, sinister. Right. And, like, on a higher level, do I think you know, everyone with an addiction problem or an alcohol problem is an abusive, irredeemable human being? Of course not. You know, I, no. I would never say that. I mean, I, I think, you know, struggling with addiction and, and struggling with your past and all that, I, I would never be unsympathetic towards something like that. But I think for the purposes of the film, the way that Kubrick's telling it, to me, he wants you to feel that way. And, and, and he introduces is, is is not redeemable by the end, and and he, right. he doesn't see an importance in making sure you connect with every character of the film and love them and see and empathize with them necessarily. You know, he's looking at, and that's I think that's where you know Stephen King called the movie really cold too. 
Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I think a lot of the kinds of movies that I like, and I say it a lot on this podcast, a lot of the movies that I like, people will say, you know, are cold, that you don't really get to know the characters, you don't really empathize with them. But to me, that's not important for a successful film. It, it really depends on what you look for in a movie. And to me, right. if you're looking for this this experience, this ambiguity, this um, fear and dread and suspense, all that into like one film... I think this movie gives you that in a way that some others don't. And I think part of what gives you that is not letting you get too close to everybody. You know? and, and if you want to feel good about a movie, you go see a Disney film, <laughs> not Someone a Stephen told me King that book. One time. I gave them a list of my favorite films and they were like, have you ever seen a Disney movie? <laughs> I was like, yes. Um, but lots of them. <laughs> yeah. A lot, many. Uh, I, I would also say, Oh man, I had one more thought about this movie that I wanted to get out. Make sure I said, um, huh, maybe it'll come to me. Well, let me ask you, what, what keeps you coming back to this movie? I think the fact that there's a lot of, a lot of detail in the nuance yeah, and that there's a lot of things that you can notice for the first time that you didn't notice before. And then uh, really the energy that, that people lend to it when they say they've seen it and then you want to get involved with a conversation about it, that whole thing keeps me going back. Yeah, I think being able to get someone else's take on it. Like, I think it's interesting that you view this movie. You're constantly trying to reason out in your mind. Is it supernatural? Is there reincarnation? Is, you know, what's going on? What are their motivations? Is he redeemable? Is he not? But then for me, like, I guess I look at it from the more, I guess, cold perspective of, I, I'm more interested in the way the movie makes me feel the way that it looks, the way that it builds that, that dread and that fear. And also, I don't want to answer all those questions. I kind of want them to stay open for me to be able to enjoy it. Well, it, it even it even appeared in a, one of the episodes of Daria, where <laughs> she's go she's driving, and they're going to somebody's house or mansion, and she looks out the window and she sticks out her finger and says, "Red rum, red rum." <laughs> so, a lot of people have seen this movie. Yeah, um, it's in our it's in our uh, psyche. One time I showed this now. movie to someone from work. Mm-hmm. In that part where he says, you know, here's Johnny, which is not in the script. That's actually oh, yes. something that Jack came up with. And my friend <laughs> went, okay, so why did he say that? His name's Jack. And I looked at him like, what? And he goes, yeah, why did he say here's Johnny? And I'm like, like Johnny Carson. And the person was like, I don't know who that is. It made <laughs> me realize like we're moving so far away from 1980 that, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of people that don't even know who Johnny Carson is. So like the most iconic scene of that movie, people don't even know like what that's referencing. Yeah, that they wouldn't mean? get to why he says, here's Johnny. And here at home growing up, when you were little, we would hear, here's Johnny every night for a yeah. long time. <laughs> There's a lot of funny moments in the movie like that. You know, I think, yeah. you know, that part is scary and then sort of punctuated by that funny moment. And then there's also that scene where... You know, those scenes, his interactions with Wendy, you know, you think it's possible or whatever he said to her. And, you know, there's certain things that he says back that you can't help but giggle a little bit at. Oh, yeah. And then also with Holleran, when they show his, uh, where he lives, and then they show those two paintings of those black women on the walls. Oh, yes. Like, there's something comedic about it. It's just interesting to me that the movie is so intense and so scary but then Kubrick gives you some brief breaks at just the right moment, you know. I would I would tell him to see it with an open mind, 
and see it as it is. It's, it's a horror film, but it's a suspenseful film, and it's one that that um, that touches the areas of your life that uh, that you don't want to touch, and that are scary and that are disturbing, but that it's it's a good film, and that it's entertaining, and that it it has redeeming value. Yeah, I think that All for of that. me, like, uh, and I kind of, I sort of forgot to talk about this in our starter questions, but like I said, I saw this movie when I was really young, and I, I forgot about this, but my childhood friend Hannah the other day told me on Facebook, she was like, oh yeah, that's that movie you'd make us watch every year on Halloween. And I thought, <laughs> oh man, I did that? And like, as a kid, like, we weren't, we shouldn't have been watching that anyway. Um, uh, but you know, that's funny to me that I was even at that age trying to indoctrinate people to watch movies that I liked, but, um, yeah, but yeah, I, uh, I think that, uh, you know, this movie, it's, uh, it broke a lot of ground, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. visually, especially, but also how to build suspense, how to, how to play off the psychology of your audience. And so I, I would say view it from that, that standpoint, like mm. I said, it definitely has disturbing moments. It's definitely horror, but that's not the reason why I like the film to me at all. I, th- mm. I like all the other parts of it. That, like I said, the music, the sound, and the visuals. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's something that really sticks with you. And then, of course, as I always say about movies that I like, um, I like a movie where once it's over, I'm thinking about it again. And then when I watch mm. it again, I have a, a deeper experience every time I see it. It for some reason, it's a movie that I just can't get tired of seeing. And right. I think it really shaped, for me, the kinds of movies that I like. I think when you look at like my top 25, you'll find a lot of movies in there that sort of have that suspenseful element, but also that visual element. And like I said before, that level of ambiguity. When, when I have all those elements, those are the kinds of things that I like. So I think mm-hmm. if, if that's something you're interested in, um, this is a, a good movie to choose for that, for that reason. I it's think my motivation, yeah. my motivation to ask people to see a movie like that, or Marathon Man, or um, The Sorcerer, is because there are certain experiences there that I think they need to see, or uh, uh, Midnight Cowboy. Mm-hmm. And if they don't see that, then they are not; they don't can't relate to a lot of phrases that people continue to to use. For example, yeah, it's uh, part of Midnight, pop culture. I mean, yes, kind of have to it, see this movie. Midnight Cowboy gave us. Hey, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. And you yeah. hear that quoted over and over. And if you didn't see that movie, you don't know that that's, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Rico, who is, uh, um, what's the name of the, of the movie star? Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman's walking down the street and a car comes too close to him and he says, hey, I'm walking here. And he's in New York. And, uh, you know, that's a very, a good moment. Yeah. How about Taxi so- Driver when he says, uh, are you talking to me? You know, most of my life I didn't know that that's where that came from. Because guess where I saw that quote? Back to the Back future. to the future. Yeah. Yes. And so I assumed, oh, that must be from a Western. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. And he also acts like, uh, like uh, um, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood at yeah. times. Yeah. So it confused even, me. Like my, almost my whole life I thought that that quote was from a Western. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it could be. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, I think that's a good point uh, for to, to, to have an idea uh, in pop culture where this re- where some of these references came from. Um, it's definitely a movie that you know at the time didn't make a huge splash, but over time has you know critics have really changed their opinion on it because I mean how can right. you not? It's just had a really big impact I think in cinema in general and 
you know, you can't help but go back and look at their the performances and just keep thinking about like, well, what is it that set this movie apart? And I think it's a lot of different things. Yes, I agree. Um, it's a, it has all the elements of a big hit, even yeah. though unfortunately it wasn't a big hit. But several movies have been that way where they weren't big hits when they came out, but then later on everybody gravitates to them, and 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 people can't believe that it wasn't a big hit because they like it so much. Mm-hmm. And I think having all this open-endedness and, you know, different interpretations, I feel like that's kind of the mark of a cult classic film. Um, have you seen that documentary, Room 237? I have not. It's like, I, we can't end this without talking about that. Um, it <laughs> is uh, bananas. Um, it takes all those questions to the extreme I don't know that I agree with almost any of their assessments on it, but basically it takes the film and dives really deep and like insists that, you know, Kubrick, uh, I think when you go back and watch this film, there, there definitely are some, we, we kind of talked about this when we watched it, some racial undertones oh, in the yes. movie, like he Definite. has that line of white man's burden and yes. he uses, you know, Grady uses the N word and you know, they talk about the Native Americans and how they basically just built this over where they lived and had to fight them off. I think that's there, but in Room 237, they take it really far. They're like, this is, this movie's about the Holocaust. Yeah. You know, or they're like, oh, this movie, you know, is an admission that uh, we didn't really go to the moon and then we faked the moon landing. <laughs> like, it's really out of left field. But I think yeah. it's because you are given, like, like, so many hints like that in the movie, like, that line and that racism and what does that end up meaning? It's not answered, you know? And so because we don't get answers, it leads people to obsessively analyze and wonder what happened. And that's why you get documentaries like that. And that's kind of why recent, more recently, this movie's kind of back in pop culture limelight Mm. because of, I think partially because of that documentary. Um, Well, thanks dad for taking the time out of your day to talk about this. Sure thing, Lisa, anytime. Okay, talk to you next time. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening. It was so fun having my dad on the show to talk about my favorite film since he was the one that introduced me to The Shining. Uh, If you guys have any feedback about this episode or any others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay or on Instagram at AYA Nancy AMI Lisa or in our closed Facebook group, I Love That Movie. Our group is closed, but just send a request and I'll add you. It's a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment-free. My only rule is keep it positive. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. If you leave a positive review on iTunes, you'll be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. Right now, we are one review away from 15. Once we hit 15, I will draw a winning name. Everybody loves free money, and it's my way of giving back to you guys for supporting me. Thanks so much, and I look forward to hearing from you.